It's been said about Farmer's Market that if you spend enough time here, sooner or later you'll run into everyone you've ever known. That's what's been said, but chances are, with 20,000 visitors daily, except Sundays, you'll bump into someone familiar. Farmer's Market is an institution, internationally known, a collection of 160 different shops, salons, stands, stores, and eating places. It's something you might expect to find in Europe or the Mideast or the Orient, instead of garish L.A. But here it is anyway, a carnival beneath a canvas covering in the middle of the City of the Angels, a bustling but friendly place that assaults the senses that see, smell, and listen with a mixture of aroma and activity like you've never before experienced. This farmer's market feels like a trip around the world. There's food from Louisiana, from Italy, from Brazil. You can taste everything right here. This looks so good. Now this here is fried yuca. We've got some Portuguese sausage, some Brazilian steak. Mm. Greetings, lovers of all things R&R. That's Russell and Ron, rest and relaxation, and of course, pirates. This is episode 29 of All You Ever Think About is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the career and discography of Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. In this episode, Mr. Monty Mallon joins me again, Christian Huey, in part one of our discussion about the 1981 album Womp That Sucker, which ushered in a new phase of Sparks' career and finally made them local heroes in the L.A. rock and pop music scene. So, down your espressos and strap yourselves in for this latest episode. Let's go to the farmer's market, fresh food to eat. Lots of fruits and vegetables, enough for you and me. Congratulations. It may not look like much, but your time machine worked. You feel like the protagonist from H.G. Wells' classic, enthralled, bewildered, and exhausted. You could use a pick-me-up. Violating the second law of thermodynamics can really sap a person's strength and... Well, you could go for a double mocha latte, but where are you? And when are you? Fortuitously, your time machine appears to be parked in a spot reserved for oversized vehicles, so you begin looking for clues. You see part of a crumpled up newspaper a few feet away. Los Angeles Times, July, 1980. If memory serves you right, there's only one Starbucks in existence, and that's all the way up in Seattle. Out of habit, you pull out your smartphone from your back pocket and type the word latte in the search bar. You then smack your palm against your forehead and stash the device away again. There won't be a signal anywhere your iPhone could pick up for at least a good three decades. Looking up, you see a clock tower in the middle distance with the words Farmer's Market mounted under the clock face. You make your way toward the beacon and you are greeted with a heady haze of inviting aromas of all kinds. Weaving through the crowd, you pass by stands, kiosks, and trucks advertising poultry, produce, Brazilian steaks, Lebanese 
shawarmas, ramen, curry. Several vendors boast framed pictures of celebrities posing with the shopkeepers or their wares. Al Jolson, Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, the recently deposed Shah of Iran. As you look among the throngs of people, you recognize familiar faces in the flesh. There's Henry Winkler, a.k.a. the Fonz, enjoying a shrimp gumbo, along with fellow TV star John Ritter. He's savoring a powdery beignet and washing it down with a chicory root coffee. It's the coffee aroma that's got your attention now. You follow your nose to a quiet corner. Quiet, that is, but for the cappuccino machine being manned by a middle-aged male barista. Rows of fresh pastries tease passers-by with irresistible smells and unpronounceable labels if one lacked sufficient exposure to the Western Romance languages. Seated at a medium-sized round table are three or four young Caucasian men. They're greeted by two other young Caucasian men, both tall and extremely thin, casually but stylishly dressed. Both have dark hair, medium length, noticeably wavy. One man wears his hair slicked back and sports a humorously anachronistic toothbrush mustache. The man with the unslicked hair lowers a plastic tray onto the table as he proceeds to divvy out full paper cups and glistening pastries wrapped in wax paper. You overhear some idle chatter among the men about Belgian towns, French cafes, you distinctly make out the phrase, can't get this anywhere else in the city, from the mustached man, in a cadence and timbre resembling a radio announcer for a classical music station. The mustache-free man speaks in a more lilting, higher tone as he registers interest in a keychain he sees upon the table. Bates Motel, he pronounces. Is that the name of a band? You realize your time machine landed you right outside one of Los Angeles's most treasured economic, culinary, and cultural landmarks, the original Farmer's Market. First founded in 1934, was reportedly one of the very few spots one could enjoy a cup of espresso in L.A. in 1980. That shared love of premium copies is how Sparks and the band then known as the Bates Motel entered each other's orbits. Within months, they would combine forces to finally catch the attention of the local music press and reconfigure Sparks for the burgeoning MTV scene. Now, if you could only carry enough petrol back to your time machine to make it home in time for dinner. Let's go to the farmer's market, fresh food to eat. Lots of fruits and vegetables, enough for you and... Hey everybody, it's Christian Huey. This is All You Ever Think About is Sparks. It's episode 29 at long last. Today, once again, I'm joined by my uh, good friend, my compatriot, Mr. Monty Mallon. Hey there, Monty. Hey there, Christian. How are you today? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, fantastic. It's um, uh, It's been a holiday uh, week, uh, Thanksgiving. Got to spend some time with the fam. And then once I got the fam out of the house, I thought, hey, let's do some sparks. Same here, man. We had a good Thanksgiving, all the family together. We keep it small. 
Yeah. Well, that's, keep it small. And it was just right. We had people coming. Well, we had my mother-in-law came in uh, and she's staying at our new house where we've been for just a little over a month now, which is really nice. That sounds so, very this nice. This is a new studio. Um, and I'm going to call it that, even though it's just a guest room. Uh, I've got the soundproofing on the walls and, and all that fun stuff. You look very professional. Well, thank you. All right. The, you the, have the illusion. Game, my friend, you have upped your game once again. <laughs> all right. All right. The, the, he's bought the illusion, folks. So <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Uh, we are going uh, tonight to uh, get into the first half of WAP, that sucker, and all, and get into the background, uh, what the, the what's and the why, and maybe why, and the how um, that that record came to be. And then the next time we get together, we will uh, get into side two. And at that time, we'll get into the promotions that they did in the wake of the release of the album and concert tours and that sort of fun stuff. So, so Christian, can I just yeah. ask you a question? Oh, yeah. When do we have to talk about that uh, funny face video? We're going to get to it. Okay. I, and that's a threat. I am not looking forward to it. But it is going Everything on. else I am looking forward to big you time. signed on for this. <laughs> everything else. Is um, so to begin, geez, how do we begin? How do we begin this album? Well, why don't we just start with um, this? Uh, since you're an, an OG, an original uh, Sparks fan, Monty. You mean we're old. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there very, very soon. My joints are starting to creak as well. Um, where were you? Uh, what, what, when you first heard this album, what was your reaction, your response as a then current Sparks fan? Well, I think you've really hit on... What I think is what makes these conversations uh, work and so much fun is that you and I come from these, come from the, we come to this from two different perspectives. We kind of converged on this amazing band. And yeah, I was living it. I was, this was 1981, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was back at home and I was just uh, starting, uh, I was still in college. I was still in college. And uh, there were record stores that would hold Sparks things for me. And they hold this, held this, new, you know, and I kept up in the newsletter and there was this, all this hype about the new album. And then I got, they were holding a single for me and it was Tips for Teens. Was there hype? Where, where were you? The newsletter. Oh, in the newsletter. In the newsletter. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. The, the newsletter. Mary, Mary Martin's. Uh, Mary newsletter. Martin's newsletter. And I've, I dug them out for this, uh, for, for our conversations and I've been going through them again and they are an absolute treasure trove. So we can come back to that. Where I was though, is I, I got this single of tips for teens with don't shoot me on the back. And I played it on my uh, parents, somewhat haggard old record player. And it was just so reassuring and so much fun and so revelatory. And it was just, I can't think of another R word at the moment, but you know, just hearing it was like, wow, this is really good music. This is Sparks music. And I didn't know, you know, where the rest of the album was going, but I was just so happy hearing it, you know? And it's like, this is a band again. And this is what I want. I was always one of those guitar people with Sparks. Yeah. So it's interesting. So that's where I was, man. Uh, you know, of course, you know, my story, I didn't get into it until much, much 
much later. And so it was sort of a, um, a cram session <laughs> when I um, started listening to the discography. But I agree that this was somewhere between a, a relief and a revelation after relief. terminal drive. That's the other drive. R word. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the other R word. Um, and, and I, and I, I definitely want to get into that. I don't want to step on that too much right now because I want to make sure we, you know, I do my due diligence and do the, the narrative part. Um, and we've got a lot to talk about the, the actual album, but, um, I, my first, uh, feelings and thoughts uh, when I came across that album after uh, listening to all of the discography in succession was that they had they had found their way again. They they found their muse. They found what works for them, and it also was part of the then zeitgeist. Which, and I'm sure we'll get into this a, a bit later. I'm not so sure that they sounded as ahead of their time as maybe they did in the island years or as they did in uh, uh, the, the first Marauder um, uh, album, uh, Number One in Heaven. But it sounded very modern and exciting. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. Do you, do you ever wonder if maybe they were tired at this point of being ahead of their time? Maybe they just wanted to make some fun music with these guys fun. who liked pl- hanging out with them. Yeah. I think that's a, that, that's a good point. If you know, when you listen to, oh my gosh, bef- before this album, what was the last Sparks album that sounded like it was fun? Yeah, I mean, indiscreet. Number one is fantastic, but I don't know if I'd call it fun, except for maybe Beat the Clock. No, number one heaven isn't fun, um, except for maybe, maybe Beat the Clock. Maybe, yeah. You know, introducing, I think they tried to have a fun sound. They had some fun moments. My personal take is that it seemed a little forced. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think they had, I, I think they... More important question is when did they lose that sense of fun? Mm. And I think it was really just gone on. Well, I don't know. Maybe the last out, maybe Terminal Jive was all to somebody else. Maybe it was just fun. But what, what we hear, I think, is that they were just doing what they really wanted to do. And what I hear is that what they really wanted to do at the time was have fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. As a thought experiment, how do you think it would have uh, gone down differently if there were no terminal jive, and this was the follow up to number one in heaven. Well, I think they weren't ready for this. Yeah. They weren't ready for this. They they really thought they they signed a four con, a four record deal with Marauder, mm-hmm. and they produced one, and it was a big critical success, and it had three singles, and that all did well. And I think they expected to build on that. And instead, they were, as we discussed in our last episode, instead they were forced to take a step back. And they were kind of put into a box, which was my, I stand behind what we said last time. This wasn't really, you know, they weren't in control of that record is my clear impression from it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that it was all kind of a shocking little period for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think they had to regroup before they could make this record. I think so. Well- You know, introducing was so disappointing to them, and I can't help but think that they had some of the same 
the same reactions to terminal jive. You're like, we had, you know, we were doing something great before, and then we had these outsiders come in, you know, tried a, a different uh, a path. And then, well, of course, in the case of Terminal Jive, it was it, whatever they wanted to do is completely upended. And instead, you had um, uh, Harold Faltemeyer and, and Maroder say, no, 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 no. We're going to do these songs instead, and this is how we're going to produce them. Uh, this is the question we uh, pondered last time. Mm-hmm. What if they had been able to do some of Ron's original songs? What right. was his vision for the follow-up to Number One in Heaven? I can't imagine that Terminal Jive is it. Yeah, so if anyone out there is listening, including our uh, friend of the pod, Ruth Swartz, if anyone has, thank you, if anyone has any inside information as to what some of those songs were that Ron and Russell had planned before they were so unceremoniously dumped in favor of uh, what ended up on there, I'd love to hear about it. So let us know. Um, so um, after. Terminal Jive was released, of course, as we talked about before. Uh, it, it got some traction, mostly in France. Of course, um, When I'm With You was a huge seller. They did a lot of TV appearances in France during the second half of 1980. Uh, but as it turns out, they also spent uh, quite a bit of time in L.A., kind of shuttling uh, back and forth. Now, I don't know what happened first. If they first met the guys that I'm going to mention, or if they were first uh, approached uh, with an offer to do some shows, live shows in France. I know that that did happen. They were approached to do some shows in France and maybe a a broader mini tour of Europe. And their response at that time, mid-1980 was, well, that'd be great, but we don't have a band. I think that's right. I think I think you've got the history right. And again, there are those who can correct us, but I think that they got the offers to go and they didn't have a band to do it with. And so I think they're still mulling it over when they went originally. I think they went with the band when they went over to France and Belgium for the first time, right? Uh, when they actually did live shows. Yeah. They had the the new band with them from what I understand. Uh, yeah, so they would kind of go back and forth, you know, between uh, France and, and L.A. And while they were uh, in L.A., <clears throat> uh, they like to frequent. Here's the thing about Ron and Russ. Uh, they, um, they're squeaky clean guys as far as their habits, but they loved coffee, still do, and love espresso. And as unbelievable as it may sound today, back in 1979, 1980, in Los Angeles, there were very few places you could get a cup of uh, espresso. And they got really hooked on that espresso when they were in uh, in Europe. So they went to a place called the Farmer's Market, still around today. And it was uh, frequented uh, decades before by the likes of uh, Old Blue Eyes. Uh, Frank Sinatra would be there and you know Tiny Tim. I saw some photos. The website's still up. So they eventually noticed that they were running into some of the same people over and over again. And it happened to be folks like David Kendrick and Les Boehm and the other guys in a band uh, that was called Bates Motel. Um, According to uh, Dave Kendrick, they ran into each other at a Belgian waffle stand, for those of you taking notes. So uh, they talked for a while 
And uh, Kendrick and Boehm apparently were already big fans, especially Dave Kendrick of uh, Sparks Music, knew about their discography, which many people, unfortunately, in L.A. actually didn't. So Ron Russell started going to some of the Bates Motel's shows, and then they got together at some point and say, hey, we've got an offer to do some shows in France. We don't have a band. You guys are great. We want to move away from the sound we had before because our last record sucked. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and, and get together? <clears throat> so just a little bit about Bates Motel uh, real quickly. So those guys uh, actually had formed their band pretty recently, late 1970s there in L.A. David Kendrick, um, and we're going to talk to him again soon. He's originally from Chicago, and then uh, he was in some bands, plays drums, of course. He moved to L.A. around 1980. He was tired of being just a hired gun, so he wanted to have some creative input. Met these guys. Now, up until early 1980, they only really had one recorded uh, song that was out there. You can still find it on YouTube today. It's called uh, Live Among the Dancers. It was on a compilation album called uh, Sharp Cuts, and that was on Planet Records. I'll put a link to that, by the way. These guys were film buffs, particularly uh, French New Wave, Film Noir, and of course, Hitchcock, hence the name. In fact, one of their promo items at their own shows was the Bates Motel keychain. Long story short, Ron and Russ offered these guys the chance to be their backup band um, on the shows that they wanted to, to do. They had uh, Bates Motel. They had a lead guitarist at that time named Dave Draves. And <clears throat> I guess he was, you know, fairly instrumental to the band, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, he announced that he wanted to leave L.A., and go live somewhere in the desert. Who knows? Ojai, uh, El Cajon, don't know. But David Kendrick then pressured the other guys in the band. You're like, okay, look, our band is not what it was before. Why don't we just hitch our wagon to Sparks? And they took the males up on their offer. And again, Dave Kendrick already was a huge Sparks fan. Here's a little quote that I pulled from one of my sources. It was very unusual to have a set of brothers that weren't only in an ongoing working relationship, but who also literally spent all of their time together. They were almost like a symbiotic set where they made, where they kind of made one complete person. Russell was far more the social half, while Ron was very reserved very few times when they were apart. When Russ went to China, Ron was at loose ends. I'd like to know more about the. China. That's interesting. I know. There's not much more information than that. The China thing. So Ron and Russ, they booked a month's rehearsal time in LA and they started working on some brand new songs from scratch. At this time, Ron had no lyrics whatsoever. He had some titles, but no lyrics. Ron would bring in a blackboard and he would just write out the chords on there and have the band keep up. I'm sure he told them, you know, what the, what the beat was and whatever. And Russ would just sort of psycho babble his way through those songs. Now, um, I'm going to sort of detour here. So one of my sources easily 
uh, said that they toured venues in L.A. throughout the autumn of 1980, but I guess that's not true. They didn't actually do any shows in 1980. It wasn't until they went to France when they started to do some shows. I read that too. Um, and I've talked to uh, Rude about this and I've looked up all the set list uh, sites on the internet. I, and I've gone back to my old newsletters, as I mentioned before, and there's no mention of shows. Mm. And I just think that uh, easily just got that one wrong. I think so. It's a great book, but I think he just got that one wrong. This is a an asterisk kind of thing here, but one of Dave Kendrick's favorite songs that they practiced but never recorded was called One Nut. <laughs> the line that he remembers is, one nut is all it takes. Who knows what the hell that means? There's all kinds of ways you could interpret that. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah so, when, so they all together went to Musicland Studios, and that's a Giorgio Moroder's, uh, Moroder's place in Munich, to start recording. As you mentioned, Monty, they had a four-record production deal with Moroder, and uh, although Moroder didn't show any interest in producing that album, he was kind of sparked out. So he uh, tapped one of his, uh, one of his employees, uh, who was you know, uh, already a pretty well-established established producer, Reinhold Mack, a.k.a. Mac, uh, to produce it. Now, Mac at that time was currently working with Queen on their 1982 Hot Space album. And, uh, and I think that there are a lot of sonic similarities that you can hear between tracks on those two albums. Maybe we'll you know, get into that a little bit. But Mac's big thing was that he knew how to blend the new synthetic sounds and those danceable beats with traditional rock instrumentation. And that was what Sparks wanted to go for. The studio was underneath the Arabella Hotel. Now, Dave Kendrick uh, had a few things to say about that. One of the things that he enjoyed doing was they had access uh, to some long hallways and um, bathrooms and whatnot that had exposed pipes. And a couple of songs on the album that would uh, come from these sessions, Womp, uh, the sound that he would make banging on some of these pipes show up on that record, sort of an, uh, I guess a proto, uh, uh, what you might call it, uh, industrial type of music. You can hear that on upstairs, by the way. You know, I- I'm sorry to interrupt your narrative. No, 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 no. So many thoughts here. One, I'd love to go back. We don't have to, but I'd love to go back to that comment you made about his perception of them as being like two parts of a whole. Yeah, that that is really something we should th- we should we should talk about at some point because that does seem to be so accurate and is so unique in music. I mean, you don't get that with the Davies. You don't get that with other brothers. You're right. Uh, no, you don't. You just don't. Uh, but they're always there together, and it doesn't seem like they even have a life outside of each other not that we know but you know uh, you know and i don't want to overgeneralize but you know it is a really fascinating um aspect of the two of them but getting back to what you were saying um i think that there is so much creativity on this album and i love everything that david kendrick has to say uh your interview with him was great and 
I, I'm really looking forward to where we could talk about some of his stuff and his contributions oh, yeah. to the album. So you go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you, I'm getting really long winded about that, I'll wrap it What's up. But I, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I, I want to talk about that. Uh, the Ron Russell yin yang, you know, one part uh, can't really uh, thrive without the other. Uh, so one thing that was um, unusual about this album at the songs on on Womp was that Ron, according to Dave Kendrick, would write out the lyrics for the song to be recorded the next day, the night before. These were not lyrics that he slaved over for weeks or months, as opposed to a lot of the songs, for for example, in the in, in the on the island records. What do you think about that? <laughs> Well, propaganda was written pretty quickly. Well, I guess, yeah, because yeah. they were on tour, the and that one of... came out the same year, yeah, as uh, as Kimono. Right. But um, I think he's he's always been able to do it. Sometimes, as he's gotten older, I, it seems like he's been more willing to just take his time about things. But I think the basic point you're making is is really fundamentally uh, amazing that he would just basically be able to flip out these songs as if there is nothing to it. Whereas I've been able to write a grand total of two songs in my entire life. And it's not without trying, but I've only twice been able to actually write something that actually was a song. So to think that this guy has this much in his head, ready to just come out as in with the articulation that he can do it is mind boggling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Completely agree. I, yeah, I've got some more thoughts about the the lyrics that I want to get into in a little bit. Um, just to wrap this part up, I know that Ron and Russell had been listening to a lot of then current new wave. So that did influence, um, I guess, sort of the style that they would uh, end up inhabiting uh, on this album. Also, interestingly, around this time, this was when uh, MTV popped up. Yeah. Early 1981, and uh, it was Hilly Michaels had a minor hit going around that time, and they were very well aware of that. Yeah, well, this it harkens back to an earlier comment that you made that they weren't necessarily ahead of their time when they were putting out these two two albums. But what I would add to that is that they're still very much Sparks albums. Mm-hmm. You know, they they may not have been groundbreaking and creating a new a whole new genre, but they were Sparks. They were sparks through and through. So I I think they did okay. What do you think about the conjecture that this is a hearkening back to their island period? Because I've read that from a few sources. Um, It definitely is more in the typical pop context with a dedicated band. It's the first time they've had a real band since, uh, I guess, you could say indiscreet, but I think you could go even further. You know, I mean, because indiscreet it was already Ron and Russell with the other guys, which they have acknowledged, by the way. You know, that yeah. they, they didn't see themselves as part of the real creative process by that point. So I think it is really, if you think about it, the first time since propaganda that they were really working in a band context. And I think that there's there are similarities. I, you know, it's different. It's geared for a different time and place. Right. right. But it's still hearkening back to that. And, you know, I think this is where they felt like they had to go back to in order to reestablish themselves and then figure out where they were going from there. Right. 
It's like they had founded themselves in a dead end. It would seem to me, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a point that I think I've made in a different show, but maybe not. I, I, you know, the thing is living it as I was, there was no, there wasn't this 50 year history that created this sparks entity about who movies were being made. You know, at that Mm -hmm. time, they were just two guys trying to figure it out. They were in their mid thirties or or early Mm -hmm. thirties. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were just trying to figure it out. You know, the last record bombed. The one before that was a big hit. The one before that bombed. The one before that never caught on. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just figured, what do we do next? How do we make our career work again? There was no great. I don't believe personally there was a great vision at this time. I think it was like, what do we do next? What's going to be fun? Let's have some fun. Let's write some great songs again. Yeah. I'm I'm with you right there. Yeah. Do you, does it feel or sound like a step back from the dizzying technological heights of number one in heaven? Uh, to me personally, yeah. no, because by this point, after, uh, as I said on our very first interview, once Indiscreet came out, I, I realized, okay, they're not about one sound. They're about doing something new and different and constantly challenging us and constantly challenging themselves. And so you got hard rock, you got uh, pop rock, you got disco, you got whatever the hell Terminal Jive is. It was like, okay, they didn't want to do that anymore. You know, that had run its course, one or two albums. Now they were on to something else. So I was, I, I never felt that there was a step down from what they had been doing before. I felt it was just a new direction. Let's see where it goes. And this one seemed to be working right from the start. Like, I really liked Big Beat, but it was forced. And it took a little while for me to really, really enjoy it and, and you know, in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, number one in heaven, second I heard it, I said, there's something here. I don't know what it is yet, but there's something here. Uh, and this one, like I said, my reaction was instantaneously, yeah, I like this. This is a good direction for them. Number One in Heaven is one of my favorite albums ever. Having said that, when I look at it stacked up against the rest of the Sparks Ovu, it does seem like a uh, self-conscious genre exercise. This doesn't. This, to me, sounds like what they're comfortable with. They're in their comfort zone and they're just, you know, they're on banging on all cylinders doing what feels right to them. See, I guess I see it a little differently. I mean, I agree with your your conclusion, but I think they were regrouping and they were saying, we just got to start over again and we're going for America. We're just going to do it in a way that makes sense. Strip down all the bells and whistles of the island years, just write some great songs and take it from there. That's what I hear when I hear the album. Strip, stripping down the bells and whistles. Okay, so I like that. And we kind of talked about this before. Um, you know, I'm a, a, a student <laughs> of, uh, of music theory. And, you know, going through those Island albums, my God. I mean, Ron throws everything and the kitchen sink out there. And he's borrowing... Uh, chords and he's doing all these crazy modes and whatever. You don't hear that here. If it's an A major, it's an A major. If it's in D minor, it's in D minor. And they don't really do um, a lot of that more, I guess, adventurous 
I hate to say that because it does feel like an adventurous album, but in that sense, in the chord lead, leading and the music theory, it's a, it's uh, streamlined. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's a whole different kind of experience. There is, there are elements in all the songs that harken back to what we love about Sparks. You know, none of them are just. I don't. I can't think of any offhand that are just linear from beginning to end. You know, like a Rolling Stones song. Um, <clears throat> it's a Sparks album, and these are Sparks songs, and it works on that level. And every song does have a few nuances to it, but compared to what they were doing before, it's. I, w- I would agree with you. It's. It's kind of a night and day kind of thing. What what I, what I uh, would like uh, as we go through these songs, and today we're going to go through the the first half, is to let me know if there is anything in particular that's interesting going on with the drumming, because. Sure. Yeah, of course, you and I both agree this album and the one that that uh, comes after it, the David Kendrick's work just cannot be praised enough. And I and and I feel like he puts such a stamp, an indelible stamp on, on those two records. That's unlike really anything else that they did. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to do a little self promotion here because not only do I want to urge people to read the interview that I did with him a few years ago when I was interviewing all the Sparks drummers, but I also want people to read the interview with Steve Nister Mm. Um, and Steve Nister. One of the things that I asked him is, well, you've played, this was right after the 21 by 21. And I said, you've, you've played all these different rock drummers, Sparks drummers, which are the, which, who do you, who left the biggest impression on you? And he said, without a without a hitch, he said, David Kendrick. Wow, cool. He said, David Kendrick, the things that he does on those albums, the inversions that he does with the beats, David Kendrick. And I, that's high praise indeed, coming yeah. from Steve Nister. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that, that guy's yeah. great, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll have Dave. We've had Dave on the show, and we'll have him back on again. Uh, but he is, he's so humble <laughs> about uh, about his achievements. And it really is pretty amazing. Um, there, there's um, a reason he's had the career he's had, you know, and been in demand by Devo and yep. these other bands. I mean, he's, he's really an extraordinary talent. Yeah. He likes to say, you know, I was lucky to, uh, work with a, a pair of brothers who were in, in a, one of the best bands I've ever heard. And then work with another pair of brothers because, yeah. uh, Mark mother's bond, Jim or Bob, I think it was Mark and Bob who were brothers in Devo. Anyway, I think there were two yeah. sets of brothers. Yeah. What about that title? Want that sucker. I, I, I Googled to see if that was a saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, and I, I couldn't find anything that wasn't related to the Sparks album. Do you remember anyone saying want that no. sucker? No, no, no. I, I, what do you think, Christian? I mean, personally, I wouldn't read it. It was just an album title. It sure. led to a great, funny picture. But do you see more in it than that? Well, I'm not trying to dig deep. It's just I was hanging out with an uh, an older friend of mine one time who turned me on to a lot of music. And uh, and he just happened to let out the, the phrase, want that sucker. And I asked him if he was a fan of Sparks. And he said, I haven't really heard any Sparks. Hmm. So I walked away thinking, well, maybe that's just a thing that was said for a while. Want that sucker. Well, I wasn't the most plugged in guy in the world when I was in college and graduate school. So, hey, 
maybe I'm maybe, maybe there's a whole culture out there based on that on that phrase. But um, I don't recall it really being used. And I think they just thought it was a good name for an album. And this album in, in particular, yeah. um, Womp That Sucker, I mean, the, it's aggressive, it's direct. And the Womp, you know, w- once you listen to that album a few times, it really sinks in. I can't help but think about Dave's, David's drums is yeah. the Womp. Well, you know, we'll, when we get to side two, that's where I think you hear some of his really, really creative stuff and and really challenging stuff. But when we talk about uh, side one in a little bit, we can come back to that and talk about some of the stuff that he does. That's really unique. Always though, in the context of the song, that's what I hate as a drummer. What I, what I hate the most are drummers who feel that they need to put their imprint on songs beyond what the song calls for. And you hear it live more than you hear it in the studio, but nonetheless, you do hear it. Uh, don't ask me for a specific example off the top of my head. We'll get there. But, but you get my point. Yeah. But he is always, the music is going in so many different directions. Every song has this little zigs and zags. Uh, and he is just always powering it and making sure you're like always ahead of it. Always have, always pushing it. He is always pushing it. We, we'll talk more about oh, it. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah, I can't we, say we enough. Agree about there. And, and, and again, as I've said many times before, not a drummer whatsoever, but my God, it's just, it's so bracing to hear what that guy is doing um, on here. Um, uh, I, I made just a couple of notes here. These are some words. Uh, I, I did sort of an associ- association, free association thing, thinking about uh, th- this album. And I just wanted to run some of these past you and, and see what you think about these. I came up with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, words in my free association that I, I gave myself like 20 seconds for. Rejuvenation. Do you see that in there? Yeah, yeah. No, another great RE word. I think we've come up with about oh, 12 right. on, this, on, this, on this conversation. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wrote down extemporaneous. Um, and I think that's because so much of this album was done that way and, and the lyrics included. Yeah. Uh, no, no thoughts on that. I think okay. that's a great point. <laughs> no. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm asking you to comment on, on words that I came up with. So, <laughs> okay. No, it's not, it's not exactly fair, is it? No, no, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. If you want me to, I, no, I agree. Uh, no, no great comments though on that one. So, Sorry. uh, well, I'm going to skip ahead a bit. Um, <laughs> There are uh, no, now I'm intrigued. Now I'm ready for okay, these new well, words. I'll go through the rest. Why not? Um, rapid fire. Sure. Okay. All right. Unf- unfussy. Unfussy. Absolutely. Unfussy. Yeah. Uh, maybe they, in places they actually could have been a little bit more fussy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Streamlined, which I guess is pretty similar. Streamlined. Yeah. 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 It definitely, they, they had a, they wanted to get from point A to point B uh, from the very first line to the very last one. It works. There's nothing extraneous on this album. Okay. Camp. Camp. <laughs> like the Batman show from 1966. Like, there you go. That's my comment. I smell so much camp in this album. And this probably more than any of their others. What, what, do you agree with me? Do you disagree? I, I, my comment was, yeah, it, make, it makes me think of the Batman show. It's just yeah. so over the top places. This is um, the beginning 
of a, a short period of their career that I like to think of as cartoon sparks. I think that they reintroduced themselves. Uh, they got back. Uh, they got back to the way they were. Exp- they were presenting themselves on the album covers, for example, in the Island Years, as a duo, a comedy duo. One person is in this situation. Another person is in this situation. Someone's usually the fall guy. And they kept that going for a few albums, starting with with this. I really felt a lot of... Uh, one of Ron and Russ's big uh, inspirations when they started, I know, was Laurel and Hardy. And I'm, I'm seeing it here. Uh, and... I, I don't know. What do you think? I guess I would look at it on this one. I guess I would look at it a little bit differently. Yes, it's humorous. Um, And yeah, your observations about the album covers are exactly right. Um, You know, that did seem to be a recurring theme, probably starting with some of the earlier videos, like, like when I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, But I, I don't think for me, cartoon isn't the right word. It's more like, like more, accessible sparks Mm. it's more it's not not everything has to be deep and you know there there are plenty of really good hitting songs like pulling rabbits out of the out of a hat and and a few others but they they kind of got away from being deep and heavy-handed and you know having this weird impression from the the island albums that never really seemed to go away i mean it seems like big beat was an effort to make it go away you know him out there in his t-shirt you know his sleeveless t-shirt and all that and at the live concerts and playing that stuff and then introducing of course and and then the the other two but i think that here they were making a conscious effort to just be straightforward sparks. i would say straightforward simple sparks nah straightforward sparks a lot of these song titles and and the lyrics in them i i think as a comedy fan I think these could all be premises for comedy sketches. I married a Martian. Where's my girl, which ends up just being a screed about how impolite people are these days. How about funny face? How about funny face? That would be more like a twilight zone, but your point is still the same. Yes. Your point is the same. All of them. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great point. (laughs) Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the songs then, huh? But let, let's just say one other thing about the funniness of this please. album is that it's so consistent. It's just a consistently funny album. And if you take the very first line, I've got a snapshot of your Aunt Maureen. Remember the Great. question in the, in the movie? Who the hell starts an album about some <laughs> Aunt Maureen, right? And then the very last line on the album, order in the court and here's the charges under the influence of wacky women. What the hell is that about? It's so... <laughs> wacky right let them have fun let them have fun guys they don't have to put out every album doesn't have to be you know a rewriting of the torah so to speak you know what i mean uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> uh no I'm, I'm i'm with you completely so all right all right i'm sorry let's go to the here. well why don't we talk about you know since okay so boom the album uh, was dropped um i believe it was may of 1981 uh that's according to uh mr easley um Let's see some notes here. That's not terribly interesting. So that cover, of course, you've got the the boxing theme, uh, Ron and Russ, which they would revisit a couple of times. They revisited that 
the boxing thing for a promotional um, stunt that they did in London. We'll talk about that, that more next time. And of course, in the video for um, Tips for Teens. What yep, you make yep. of that? I, I think it was just a fun theme. You know, I mean, I guess you could read it into it and Ron is proving that proving something over. I don't know. I, I don't even want to go there. Okay. I have nothing to read into it. it was, okay. I think we're just having some fun. All right. It was a guy named Larry Vigon, by the way, um, who was responsible for um, that imagery. And he specifically wanted to harken back to some of the Island era covers. So there you go. I will say this about it, though. What One of the great things about it is the way, you know, Ron, is, of course, is victorious. And if you look at the cover, there he is, such a skinny runt with his ribs showing. Right? And he's victorious in this battle. The, and he is even he's skinnier today. Yeah, yeah, he's such a skinny guy. It's, it's like, get eat something. Eat some it's noodles. Such, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it just goes to show they're not, um, they can't be too vain. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't have a skeletal physique <laughs> right um yeah, they knew how to play something up and they're willing to go all the way yeah i love that so the first song tips for teens of course um that was their first single they made a, a video um that was shot on film the whole uh boxing thing um interesting way to start off the album uh, musically interesting to me because if I were listening to the first 20 seconds or whatever, it just starts off with that synth bass riff and then there's sort of a flourish at the end and you don't know what sort of music that, you know, is you're in store for. And then the I'm going drum- to take, take it a little bit differently. Go for it. With Tips for Teens, the first thing I hear is Russell singing, singing that, mm. that first verse. And that was part of the uh, relief and reassurance that we were talking about before, because here was Russell in full falsetto or full, whatever it is, falsetto tenor, whatever it is, just singing his heart out about these ridiculous lyrics. Nothing like baby, baby, give it to me, give it to me. You right. know, this was just fun, weird lyrics. Weird. That was the first thing I heard. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, a lot of the vocals on this album, you've got Russ, well, when, when Russ is singing most of the main verses, he doesn't get into the falsetto as much. I think he's keeping to this new kind of lower new wave register. But there's a lot of multi-tracked uh, Russell uh, vocals in there where, you know, obviously he's harmonizing with himself. And it sounds like Queen, for lack of, you know, something better to, to compare it to. And I was trying to recall if that was something that they were doing on the island records where you had a a small army of uh, russells harmonizing in that way and i think that's a, a technical question beyond me but my guess is yeah if i think about equator you know that's yeah it could be i mean he definitely would get in the swing falsetto yeah yeah so, you know, again, and I think a lot of this, you know, comes down to the fact that when I was younger, I was a Queen fan. <laughs> and so knowing that these guys had crossed paths with Queen a couple of times throughout their career, and this time, 
uh, when their record was produced by uh, Mac. Mac at that very same time was producing the next album to come out from Queen. And so I guess part of my brain is always, you know, looking for any kind of overlap there. And it yeah, does I, sound I think like you're right. I think you're right. I think they're there. Kind of a, a play on, you know, what Queen was doing. I mean, I'm not going to straight up say it's a parody, but could be some sort of a callback. Um, so I'm going to talk about those. Uh, well, let's, let's, first, I'm going to, to that song. Uh, I'm going to talk about the the lyrics and uh, and also a little bit about how um, about the, the music itself. So it's all it's in C major, a pretty standard uh, C major. Uh, there's a bass riff that uh, maybe I'll superimpose it later. I'm not going to get into it right now, um, but it doesn't stray too terribly far from that. These are the lyrics. I've got a snapshot of your Aunt Maureen. She's 90 and you're a teen. I'm trying to cheer you up. Don't be so mean. Don't be so mean. Crash. Bam. Now you're looking good. Tip top. Now you're feeling good. Once more, here's your Aunt Maureen. Don't you feel good? Don't you feel good? Chorus. Tips for teens, tips for teens, the kind you don't see in magazines. Tips for teens, tips for teens, the kind you don't see on TV screens. Tips for teens, tips for teens. Wake up to music and say you're too sick to go to work. Soon you will lose all your zits. Tight sweaters no longer fit. Jet setters will make their pitch. I told you so, I told you so. The chorus again, tips for teens. Don't eat that ice cream. Is it vanilla? Give it to me. Don't eat that pastry. What's in the middle? Give it to me. Don't eat that burger. Has it got mayonnaise? Give it to me. And you've got this wonderful cascading synth solo that sounds like it could be in Circus Circus or something. Keep that mystique up and wear a D cup no matter what. Don't eat no curry before a very important date. Do I look so knowing and old and wise? Maybe it's those Dacron ties. How come you keep asking me for tips for teens? For tips for teens. Crash, bam, now you're looking good. Tip top, now you're feeling good. Once more, here's your Aunt Maureen. Don't you feel good? Don't you feel good? I've got a snapshot of your Aunt Maureen. She's 90 and you're a teen. I'm trying to cheer you up. Don't be so mean. Don't be so mean.
so where to start? I mean, first of all, going back to that point about, you know, how he can write these songs in a day. I mean, these aren't your typical, you know, uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, fade out songs. They never no, are. You know, they're no. always, you know, he's at his best when he writes these lengthy songs full of changes, uh, you know, full of changes in the arrangement with lots and lots of lyrics, which must drive Russell nuts sometimes. Uh-huh. And, you know, to be able to write something like this in a day or two, that's that's art. <laughs> that's it's, really art. Yeah. I, you know, it's 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 a silly song, but still there's so many aspects to it. And there's so many interesting changes. And I think you really hear a lot of the David Kendrick that you were talking about before mm-hmm. in this particular one, because it does change. You know, do I look so knowing old and wise? The music stops and then he comes in and he's leading that. And then, you know, uh, throughout the whole thing, you hear these changes and you hear him really pushing it really hard. So they found the right drummer. They found the right genre. Oh, yeah, he definitely. Their vision, and he knew how to bring it out in them, too. But just looking at the lyrics, I, I have a theory that I've never really thought through that much to say it's sensible. Do you mind a little diversion? Not at all. Okay. Um, do it. The, song, the albums that have the most wrong lyrics tend to be the ones that I think are the best albums. When you say wrong, wrong politically lyrics. incorrect. No, Ron, R-O-N. Ron, R-O-N. Yeah, when he just does these short things, you know, like a couple verses or something, it's like, eh, it's okay. And I'm sure that there's a million inconsistencies here, okay? But when he puts out this stuff like this or the Island Records or even the first two, which are just jam, you know, tightly packed with lyrics, Mm -hmm. you know, and Russell has to go all over the place to sing them. I think that tends to be when they're at their best. Again, big generalization. And I just wanted to mention it. Just I hadn't thought of mentioning it, but just in the context of this conversation, no, that's a cool. Looking at this album, which is just so full of every song, so full like that. Just an interesting thought I thought I'd throw out. Maybe it's not interesting to anybody else. One thing that I think is interesting about the the lyrics here about the our narrator is that he's playing an elder statesman (laughs) talking to uh, the younger generation, and so of course I can't help but wonder if that's where Ron and Russell were seeing themselves at this point in their career, especially in the new romantic, new romantic people and the, the new wave, you know, uh, all the kids coming up who would cite sparks, you know, as a, an inspiration or a reference. Wonder if there's a bit of that in there. Well, that's a great point, especially after number one in heaven, where he they feel strongly there were a lot of imitators. Right. Is there anything else here? Let's see. Oh, I, I, you know, my notes are just, hey, this is funny. This is funny. There's just <laughs> right. so many great one-liners, you know? What's in the middle? Has it got mayonnaise? Is it vanilla? Just all this stuff. I mean, the, again, he starts off, uh, he st- he starts off with a character and a point of view, and soon as you get into the song, you realize his point of view might be a little bit different from how he's presenting himself. As you go on, you're like, oh, I think this guy's just trying to score some freebies off of this kid. I think he's just trying to eat his burger. <laughs> I think he's trying to try to eat his ice cream. Maybe, but maybe that's an element of this album that's worth exploring. I mean, you know, for all its fun and almost frivolity, 
there's mm-hmm. there's some interesting characters, and that's what Ron does so well. He creates these characters. This album is just full of them. It is so yeah. full of characters. Uh, what else? Uh, just made a note about Les Bowen's bass. Because um, now I'm a I'm, I'm a bass student. Have been for a few months now. I'm practicing my bass. Um, he's got a very understated style on this song and several others where he's doing mostly ostinato. That's the same note over and over again. Interesting. For me, it works really well on this song. It really gives it a propulsion that I like. Interesting. Yeah. We should mention the other guys now and then. I guess we should, huh? Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> go back. All right, so we got Dave Kendrick. Thank you, Dave. Uh, the uh, drummer. We've got Les Boehm on bass. Uh, these are all the folks who are in Bass Motel, uh, by the way, who later on, and of course we'll get into this in much more detail in episodes to come, uh, Gleaming Spires. Uh, let's see. We've got a certain Jim Goodwin uh, who would end up, not only was he the keyboardist, uh, for I don't know if he's listed on there. Let me know if you see his name. Yeah, he's he's not on this album, right. but he did join them for their very first tour, if I right. recall. Yeah, Jim Goodwin was a member of Bates Motel, and by the way, he has um, he has graciously agreed for us to have a conversation with him for this pod in a few weeks. Looking forward to that. Awesome. Um, yeah, as you were saying, he does not play on this album, uh, but he did join them when they did their shows in 1981, and I believe quite a bit beyond. Mm-hmm. So he's in there, and then uh, who else we got? That was three. Bob Haig. Bob Haig, thank you. Yes, Bob Haig on guitar. Um, would love to talk to that guy, Bob. If for some reason you're listening, uh, drop me a line. So those, those are the folks who were uh, the band uh, outside of Ron and Russ for this. I wanted to ask you something, and I, I don't know if I'm alone here. As much as I love this album, and as much as I love the one after it, my big complaint is I don't like the mastering. It sounds not very clear. It sounds kind of muddy to me. Yeah. What, what you, do you you're not that? an Alan Zentz fan, I take it. I don't know. I don't know. Alan he, he's the guy who mastered the album. Oh shit! Um, you <laughs> know, we, you and I have had some informal talks about all this before getting ready for the broadcast. And at first, my reaction was, ah, I don't know. It doesn't really bother me too much, or you know, it's it's okay. It's just an '80s sound. But the more I thought about, it, the more I think you're right that that is an area that it, if they were to do some re-releases of this and some remasters, I think there's a lot they could bring out. Agreed. Yeah, so you you really got me thinking about that a little bit. I would love to hear that because, you know, if you could remaster this one, remaster Angst, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, um, it'd be tremendous. Um, Next song is Funny Face. It's a funny story. It's a funny story. You want to talk about it? What more is there to say? Who is Dr. Lamar? (laughs) I don't know, but I love that he's named. Who is Dr. Lamar anyway? But it's just a funny story and and it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Has a wonderful little uh drum part uh, toward the end where he gets to do a uh, you know a 16th note set uh roll, which I always look forward to. That's me. But uh-huh. overall, it's I think it's just a really funny little story that that was somewhere in Ron's mind somewhere. I'm too beautiful uh to be happy. 
I'm too <laughs> beautiful to make it in this world. Yeah. Woe, woe is me. So do let's do something about it. Screw up my face. It, it does. It does kind of seem like a, uh, a twilight zone episode in a way. <laughs> um, this is in D major and pretty much does uh, stick to D major. No borrowed um, chords or anything there. I'll go ahead and read through the lyrics. I looked a lot like a Vogue magazine, perfect and smooth. They all called me a dream. Flawless and loveless, no intimacy. I only live to be seen, not to be touched, too clean. Funny face, I want a funny face. Funny face, I want a funny face. Billions of dollars are spent on the face, covering, smoothing, and changing the shape. Everyone wanted a face just like mine. Nobody wanted me only to look like me. Well, I'm ungrateful, but I don't care. I hear comments from everywhere. Probably nothing behind the face. The face. The face. Are there more? I think there are more. That was the day that I jumped off the bridge. Here we go. Denouement. Trying to end it all, I barely lived. Dr. Lamar said your face is a mess. All the rest, you can guess. I got my one request. He got his one request. And I am happy, yes. And he is happy, yes. I got my one request. He got his funny face. And I am happy, yes. And I'm happy, 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 happy. And it, it goes out from there. Like a boat. 
so silly. It's just fun. Uh, I can't help but think about, um, I'm a huge Talking Heads and David Byrne fan. And Remain in Light came out just the year before. And there was a song called Seen and Not Seen on there. And David Byrne is singing these lyrics about a person who can just by force of will over time change the features on his face to resemble whatever he wants. And I thought about that. I, I'm not saying necessarily, hey, let's do the David Byrne thing. But uh, who knows? Who knows? What year was the movie Zelig? 83? Yeah, maybe, maybe this was, maybe uh, that inspired Zelig. Maybe, yeah. Zelig. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, yeah, Zelig comes up a lot for me, by the way, when I talk about Sparks. Oh, is that I, right? I, you, well, I think about, I think of Sparks in many ways as a sort of Zelig of pop music. They're always popping up here and there. They're always somewhere on the periphery of whatever's going on and have been for many, many years. So I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. And, and it's only recently that they've kind of really grabbed center stage in some ways, you know, and people are starting to say, wow, there's always something going on with these guys. And it's yeah. been 50 years. Where have you been? People? More. What, what are we at now? Yeah. 55? Yeah. Where have you if been? Counting people? that urban renewal project, which I think I'm not supposed <laughs> to mention as per management. I think you're allowed to mention it. You're not allowed to. I just can't it. play it. Yeah. All right. There you go. Um, the, I, 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 there's a lot musically that I enjoy in this song. Of course, the cascading synths. They have so much fun with synths. And one thing that I, I hadn't mentioned before, um, because I know I did a whole thing exploring the synthesizers that they were using uh, back on Number One in Heaven. And it didn't take them long until they started to graduate to um, newer uh, newer models and, and newer newer generations of, of synthesizers. And of course, they're more lightweight, which is why when they started touring with this band, they were still able to use synthesizers, just nothing like the crazy giant uh, Moog modular that they had. And I, I made it a, a point to write down even, for those who are synth heads, synth nerds, as I kind of am, that guy right over here, so uh, they used a, on Terminal Jive, they had a Yamaha CS80 for some of those cool sounds. Not quite as spacey, but, you know. On Womp, they employed one, two, three, four, five different keyboards. Uh, I doubt they took them all on the road with them, but they had a Yamaha CS80, a Polymoog, a Roland JP4, a Yamaha Grand, and a Wurlitzer Electric. And as you'll hear when you go through this album, there's something that they hadn't explored in some time, such as actual piano sounds, actual electric piano sounds, actual organ sounds. So there's a lot of stuff going on with the, the keyboards in here that I just love. Well, I think you've just explained right there why they needed a second keyboardist. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and also um, probably a third. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Um, so, Friend of the pod, Root Swart, as well as uh, another friend of the pod, uh, uh, Pody Cat, uh, she goes by. Uh, within just a couple of weeks of each other, they had uh, sent me some screenshots of Keyboard Magazine, where both uh, Ron and Jim Goodwin are discussing the um, instruments that they played while on tour and on the wow. albums in that time. And 
Very happy to have that. that. So so thank you guys. Uh, Bob Haig, a lot of cool chugging power chords in this song. He does a lot of power chords, very rocky power chords on this whole album. Let's Uh, go. We should note that this is one of the few songs, a few spark songs where there's an actual guitar solo. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That's something they hadn't done for a very, very long time. And it, and it works. It's not ostentatious. It works within the framework of the song. Oh, totally. And uh, yeah, one th- I guess I will just bring this up. Um, a cool little effect of the, the lyrics is that interesting way in which Russell's, the end of Russell's lines almost overlaps with his next line in the verses. Um, for example, I, I don't know if this is something that you noticed. And I don't know what it means, but it's kind of cool. When he goes, I looked a lot like a Vogue magazine before he hits that mm, in magazine, he's already begun perfect and smooth. They all called me a dream. They're nearly overlapping each other. Go back and listen. It's an interesting technique. Well, let's let's think about that for a moment, because at the end of this song, they go right into Where's My Girl? Yeah. There's no break. And at the end of That's Not Nastasia, they go right into Wacky Women. So uh, maybe are you maybe what we're getting at is there's some kind of planned continuity here, not only between the songs, but also within the songs themselves. I like I like where you're going with this. And I, I think I that's think as far as I have. <laughs> well <laughs> hey, we just started. Well, We'll get but, there. But that's, gotta, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's also just kind of a cool um, technique. And uh, and I've never heard them do that song live, so I'm curious to hear how they do that live. Next song is uh, Where's My Girl? Making a lot of great use of that, um, that multi-tracked choral Russell singing. Where's my girl? It's just a lot of fun and it's so silly this uh song this is me just giving my own my own take and it's it's lightweight it's silly to me this sounds like something that could have been a a comedy sketch or something because you've got this narrator and i'll read the lyrics in a moment looking for his girl and he just (laughs) throws his hands up and uh, you know gets annoyed at the the people that he's um imploring uh, oh I, I love the point you made earlier that each of these is like a little uh narrative of a of a tv show you know you could see each of these in like a half an hour episode you know mm-hmm. and uh, this one yeah I, this one would definitely qualify i could see them as comedy sketches yeah. but who knows yeah. i mean if, if anyone in the end hey wait oh wait there she is you know right. <laughs> it's like oh, sorry about that i was wrong so I'm very, very glad. This is another thing uh, that I appreciate about this album is Ron is giving you a reason to really pay attention to the lyrics because it really pays off. And there are jokes that you don't get if you don't pay attention. And that's not the case for, say, Terminal Jive, except for the first song. Here and there. Yeah. No, no, no I think you're absolutely right. Um, it is, you know, it is light, uh, but 
the music that you pointed out, all the, the instrumentation, the use of the, of Russell's voice makes it so interesting. Because it's so and dramatic. So dramatic. He's so dramatic through the whole thing. And then that wonderful verse where he makes the references to Belmondo and all these other things seen in LA with the Dodger team, seen in Tokyo with Mifuni. I mean, that's really, really clever. And he's just all over the world and he's just singing about the, you know, no one has more integrity, that integrity nowadays, everything. Oh, wait, there she is. There she is. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> it's so, it's so much fun. And, and I always appreciate any Ron Mail lyrics where I have to hit Google up and, and look up some of the references, including Mifune there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. For, for, for those who uh, don't know and are curious, and I had to Google, Google this, Toshiro Mifune was a Japanese actor who appeared in over 150 feature films, best known for his 16 film, wow, collaboration with Akira Kurosawa. And works such as Rashomon, Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, Throne of Blood, and Yojimbo. And <laughs> there you go. It's it's great. It's it's great. It's it's a great song. It's again, it's lightweight. But the another thing that I love about Ron Mail, and 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 this has been said for other songwriters who employ similar techniques, like like David Byrne, the way he is marrying the silly and um and lightheartedness with this dramatic music dong 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 and then of course you know russell's an army of russell multi-tracked making that choral sound where's my girl it's just a great i, no, I, I think great i think you nailed it i mean the, there's so much drama and and bombast in the music you know and it's so over the top all to hit that punchline all to hit that little punchline at the end. Right. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it. Absolutely yeah. nailed it on this one. Uh, I'm going to read the lyrics. Where's my girl? Who stole my girl? Where's my, and he's so single-minded. Where's my girl? <laughs> yes, Who stole yes, my is. girl? <laughs> Tell me, where can she be? Well, here's a plea to you listeners everywhere. Help me to find my baby. She's incredible. Keep your hands off of her. Keep off, keep off, keep off. Oh, where was I? Sorry. That was, that, that was me saying that. Where's my girl? Who stole my girl? Where's my girl who stole my girl? Tell me, where can she be? Well, here's a photo a couple of years ago. She's quite a bit better. She is better and out of my life. And it's too bad, too bad. It's too bad that she's been seen with Belmondo, eating snails in some bistro, seen in London and seen in Spain, seen in L.A. with the Dodger team, seen in Tokyo with Mifune, having sushi and hot sake. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Where's my girl? I'm calling her now. Where's my girl? I want her now. A joke's a joke. What a great line. Where's my girl? Who he stole like my girl? Say, he's so single-minded, like you he said. Is. It's right. Like, seriously, guys. Seriously. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> joke's a joke, but joke's where a joke. is. Come on. Here we are. Well, no one has. And, th and this is where he starts just doing this people today. Well, no one has any principles nowadays. No one has any principles. No one has any principles nowadays. No one, no one. Well, no one has that integrity nowadays. No one has that integrity. No one has that integrity nowadays. No one, no one. Never will I, will I look at another girl. Never will I look. Never will I look at another girl. Hey, wait. Hey, wait. Here she is. Where's my girl? Who stole my girl?
He's so worked up. He's so worked up. It's so funny. <laughs> and he even and he even gets he even gets sidetracked to just bitch about the people that he's interrogating. Right. People today. No integrity. Can you believe it? Oh, there she is. Wonderful, funny, loved it. And and it's another like this, like we were saying before, I think it's worth exploring the amount of characters that he came up with on this album every single song is just mind-boggling that's such a great point it there is such a specific characterization and point of view from every narrator on all these songs that uh and again like we were saying before to think that he whipped up these lyrics within 12 or so hours of recording them. I mean, that can't be a hundred percent true, but anyway, even um, if it's close, it's still amazing. It is Uh song four is upstairs. Uh, I figured this out, figured it out on the keyboard. Maybe I'll do some stuff later. It's uh, that, that's all in the key of E major. Um, this is a um, fun little romp. Um, and that uh, synth line does a lot to propel it. Do, 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 do. I'm trying to see if I have any specific notes about this particular song. I always liked this one a lot, by the way. When I first heard the album, this was one of the catchiest on my, it, my first listen through. Absolutely. Lightweight. It's, it's one that gets you right away. Um, it has those wonderful uh, verses beginning, which you'll go through when you want the art to start and when you want the intellect. I mean, that is really clever stuff. Um, if I recall at one point, I recall, I remember, I think it was Kendrick who said that this became kind of their anthem and they played it at the end of the shows and people just loved it. Cause that was, it was just that kind of song got That's people funny. on their feet. Yeah. By the way, upstairs of the, um, recording studio was the hotel and where Ron would hang out and write his lyrics. Just throwing that out there yeah they, they were literally upstairs of where they were recording when he was writing this down who knows if that was in his mind at all uh this is so ron uh ron inhabits this type of character time and time again he can't get out of his head he's in his own little world lots of fun you know double entendres populate this one I mean, upstairs, it's his head, it's his brain. Get it? There it is. And yet, it, he still keeps it interesting. Yep, yep. I'll go ahead and read. Nothing to add, nothing to add. It's oh. just a fun, it's so yeah. much fun. Yeah. It's another one that's like, it, again, this is one of those Sparks albums where it, it's all right there. That You don't really need to to necessarily dig much deeper than than what's right there. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's okay because they pull it off so well. Uh, you know, and I guess, you know, the one thing I I feel is so important to separate these albums out and appreciate them for what they are. You know, it's it's you know, there is the larger picture, but appreciate this for what it is. It's just a fun album. It's and that's okay. Again, it's that's okay. the word. That's yeah. the word. Uh, man, there's so much stuff up here. I'm pointing at my brain right now. A quarter pound, a quarter pound of lean ideas, half a pound of dirty jokes, 
one pound of non-essential quotes. It's where the dreaming starts upstairs. It's where the joking starts upstairs. You got some small ideas upstairs. You got some big ideas upstairs. It's where you calculate. It's where you speculate upstairs, upstairs. Why don't you get out of there? Upstairs, upstairs. Why don't you get out of there? Upstairs, upstairs. Why don't you get out of my head? You are low on foreign words. Better meet a foreign girl. Take the foreign girl upstairs and learn a lot of foreign words. A little enchanté upstairs. A little hey ole upstairs. And this is German. Ich heiße Billy Boy. I, I haven't bothered to translate that one, by the way. Upstairs. A little soya sauce upstairs. You got some big ideas. You got some big ideas. Upstairs, upstairs. Goes on like that, uh, of course. When you, uh, this is the breakdown in the middle, the middle eight. When you want the art to start, you cue the left side and the art will start to flow and flow and flow and leave a stain on all your carpets. So much fun to hear.
That's a great breakdown, by the way. Absolutely. Uh, upstairs, upstairs. Why don't you get out of there? Why don't you get out of my head? When you want the intellect, you cue the right side and you can collect the Nobel Prize in person or have someone mail it to you. Uh, chorus again. Crammed with common phobias. Still, it's utopia. This is where you kill a guy and you know he's still alive. Chorus. That's, that's when the cleaning starts. Hey, that's when the cleaning starts. Oh, that's when the cleaning starts. Yeah, that's when the cleaning starts. Upstairs, upstairs. What's the cleaning? I wonder. I don't know, but you know, you know how in awe I am of you and your research. So, <laughs> while you were in the song, I looked up Ichais. Oh, good. And it means my name is Billy Boy. <laughs> my na- so the name of this character, Billy Boy. Billy Boy. Got this it. one has a name. <laughs> okay, put that on the board. <laughs> the character is is Billy Boy. Um, this particular song was compared. By Easley and David Thompson, the guys who wrote the two main uh, Sparks biographies that I rely on so much for this. Uh, He compared this to to Devo more than anything else. Uh, So much so that he, uh, uh, hold on, was it Easley or the other guy? I can't remember. One of them uh, interviewed Mark Mothersbaugh, who is the Devo one of the main songwriters and singers and probably their most recognizable guy. Anyway, he had a lot of great stuff to say about Sparks and, uh, and Ron in, in particular. So uh, a bit Devo sounding, especially if you go back and listen to uh, uh, freedom of choice from 1980. I hear it. Don't know if Sparks were listening to that at the time, the drum beat to me does sound like someone possibly marching up the stairs. I'll ask David. You know, um, there was a point I made when we were talking about Academy Award performance that occasionally he writes these songs where he just kind of staccato just throws out these 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 one liners, you know, one after another. And I talked about um, Ride 'Em Cowboy, and another one mm-hmm. I thought of after the conversation was uh, Dick Around. You know, where he just kind of to do, he just hits you with one line after another. Yeah. This one I put right up there. It's just another one. Bam, 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 it's bam. Like, I mean, he's like Shecky Green. He's just like one liner, one liner, one he's liner, like, one liner. He's like the Henny Young. This is Henny their Henny Youngman, Youngman album. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's great. I'm going to remember that one. The Henny Youngman album. Really um, boy. It reminded me of Austin Manana Masur. Oh, why did I say that? Oh, because of all the, the various uh, foreign languages in there. So fun song, really, really enjoyed hearing it for the first time. Again, if the if the word to come away with uh, after listening to Womp is fun, this embodies that a whole bunch for me. And the last one on side A is I Married a Martian. I will just say right off the top, this is a top 20 spark song for me. It's it's held up so well over the years. I love it. It is really great. And another prime example of a song on this album that could be its own comedy sketch. Hell, yeah. you could flesh it could be a it could be a, a you know, a romantic comedy. It's it's all right there. I mean, there's so much you can unpack with this, you know, just from the um the premise. So I married a Martian. 
Uh, it is in A major. Um, I, I, I am going to mention this, and I'll and I'll, I'll give a link to it. When when I start to pick apart these songs, I go online to see if anyone has uh, figured out the the chords, uh, so I can play along and figure out how they're they're composed. Um, there's a guy named Joe Giddings. If for whatever reason, Joe, you're listening to this, thank you so much. Uh, at uh, at Cortify.net, who went through the trouble of actually um, writing out all of the chords to the song, which is great. So I'm going to learn it. Um, let's see. Oh, what notes did I make here? <laughs> Exo- exoticizing women taken to its logical extreme. <laughs> you know, is it? Is it? Is it Christian? I don't. Is it? I don't know, Monty. I don't know, Monty. Is it, or is it just a silly song about marrying a Martian? Yeah, it could very well be. But you know, but that character that Ron inhabits very often has that like I don't understand women. (laughs) Women are alien to me. Yeah, so I could see that. Right, right. I could see this as being a sort of a caricature type extension to that point of view. Yeah. Uh, but it's silly. It's meant to be silly, right? You know, it's like, you know, young girls. Like, I, you can't yeah. take that at face value. I wouldn't. No. But I mean, the, did, the, the last line, dramatic potential. You know, I married a Martian. They're good in the movies. Dramatic potential. They're not so hot in real life. <laughs> that's, a guy, that's a point of view. Does this not know? sound like the theme song to a movie that could have been made with the same name at about that time. This sounds Absolutely. like it could be an early eighties, silly sort of mannequin, uh, revenge of the nerds, porkies kind of thing where a guy just happens to marry Martian. I can see it. Howard, the duck. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of fun. Again, there's that word again. Um, what did I write down here? Oh, it's sort of, because I was talking about how it sounds like it could have been a goofy sort of comedy, you know, B movie. Well, you know, in the next couple of years, of course, Sparks would go on to contribute songs that were goofy in that way to several Hollywood movies like Fright Night, Go Crazy, Valley Girl, Bad Manners, which we'll get to. Also, yeah. Bob Haig gets another guitar solo in there. So thanks, Bob. That's true. That's true. He does. Yes. Here are the lyrics. Well, I married a Martian, and boy, am I sorry. Well, she came down from the sky. She couldn't stand the attitude there. She Isn't took that interesting? Me. I always found that interesting. Why didn't he say altitude? I was thinking the very same thing just now. Yeah. She took human form. Not bad. She seemed different. She had a European flair, which for some reason is very funny to me. Like, this, this is how foreign she is. She seems European. And I said, where are you from? And she said, uh, I'm from Mars. I married a Martian. Her loving is different. Viva la difference. Every night, every night. I married a Martian. I took her to Vegas. I dressed her in ermine. What is ermine? It's a type of fur. Okay. Thank you. You know why I know that? Why? Because like 10 years ago, I said to my wife, what's ermine? And she said, it's a type of fur. Taffeta, darling. You remember that line? Which one? Uh, Taffeta, darling. It's from uh, no. Young Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, was that Young Frankenstein? Yeah. Taffeta, oh, we darling. should do a podcast on that. We should. 
She had the time of her life. Though she called me Mr. Right, I could sense something was wrong. She was hardly home at all. She'd keep telling me she was doing studies of Earth. She had tendencies to flirt, and it really did hurt me. I married a Martian. Boy, am I sorry. I don't recommend it to anyone in their right mind. I married a Martian. I think I see changes. I know I see changes. She doesn't look like our kind. Her arms, her arms, her legs, her legs were growing and growing. Her form, once thin, was changing, was changing. I can't describe the changes. So gruesome. She looked, she seemed so Martian. I married a Martian. I'm going to Vegas. It isn't for pleasure. I'm getting a quickie divorce. There's your payoff. I married a Martian. Boy, am I sorry. I don't recommend it to anyone in their right mind. I married a Martian. Who was I kidding? She only had loved me because I was the first guy she saw. I married a Martian, and now it's over. Go back to your cronies. Back to your own form of life. I married a Martian. They're good in the movies. Dramatic potential, but they're not so hot in real life. See, in that in those last five or six verses, he's just, just a loser.
again. Happened yeah. to be the first guy she saw. Typical Ron Mayo character. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's not on the cover of Time magazine. No one is hoisting him over their shoulders. He just happened to be the, some loser was the first earthling dude. First guy she saw. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. Beautiful. What? That's a, oh, we, well, let's see. I guess we, there's not a whole lot to say about the two videos. I think we briefly mentioned um, the, the, the first one, which of course uh, is uh, tips for teens. Uh, of course, that's the boxing thing. Yeah. We briefly Ooh, were trying to get out of this. Yeah. We were trying to get out of discussing Funny Face, the video. I, I have to say, it's probably my least favorite Sparks video. The one they did for, oh, uh, some song on um, Hippopotamus, I thought was pretty bad too. But that's yeah. way Which in one? the future. I'm curious. The one uh, missionary position. They made a video for that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like they spent about 10 minutes on it. Um, but this one, forget about that. This one is just, you know, there's this, uh, maybe Ron felt that the um, comparisons to Hitler were too much. So he thought a child predator was it, a better character. Yeah, it could be. It could <laughs> be a bad call on his part. You know, not everything he does is genius. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you got the young girls, you got, uh, I mean, we're talking young girls, girls and you got this horrible, horrible video. In my opinion, it doesn't hold up at all. It's just stupid and pointless and wrong message. If you haven't seen it, well, don't go, go ahead and cost your <laughs> eyes. Um, it, it was shot on film like the other video on this yeah. album. And if you again, if you were bothered by the lyrics of things like "young girls," this is you know, yeah, it's, it's it's creepy stuff. Um, it looks like it's a an elementary school play being uh, put on. There are a, a few very small girls, seven, eight, nine years old. Who knows? They would be dancing around a maypole if there were a maypole, and uh, you've got uh, Ron just sort of hiding in the background, wearing a a, a a wolf mask, I think it is. Yeah, for point. part of and it. And then later he's in a cow suit. It just, I don't, I don't get it. Not everything has to work. It's Not okay to has work. say that, you know. <laughs> and then I guess their teacher or whatever, their mother figure comes around and beats the shit out of him and, and uh, tells him yeah. what. And then we get a close up of Russell wearing his uh, reflective Ray-Bans. What more do you want? What more needs to be said? IMDB, this is the only interesting thing about this. <laughs> IMDB says that Sam Peckinpah directed that. Now, Sam Peckinpah, you know, directed uh, a lot of famous movies um, in the 60s and early 70s. I, I would love for someone to corroborate that if this world famous Hollywood director had actually spent the time to do this silly thing. I find that a little hard to believe. I did too. Um, like he had nothing else to do at the at the moment. Right. So, but if we're going to end on a positive note, yeah, were you? I'm assuming you're. We're wrapping up. We're we're wrapping up, but, but okay, there's okay. No rush. If we're no rush, but if we're going to end on a positive note, I will say um, this has emerged over the years as my very favorite '80s album of theirs. It's brilliant and fun, and I just can't wait to delve into side two. Me too. Right with you. 
uh, I, uh, I, again, um, when I was going through everything in chronological order, when I first discovered the band, this was a, a breath of fresh air. Um, the one that comes after it, I think it really refines a lot of the things that they were doing uh, here. But at the end of the day, it's just so much fun to hear. And I'm, and I'm glad they found that. And it also gave them a new lease on life um, in Los Angeles and in particular. And we'll talk a lot about that um, next time. I can't wait. Yeah. But I'm just great. excited about this one. I, I thought this was a great. I, I love talking about this album. This was a lot of fun. Me too. Me too, man. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Monty. And I'll be talking with you uh, real soon. And have a great, uh, have a great day. You too. Absolutely. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You got it, man.